John Drummond is a legend in Chicago media who spent many years at CBS Chicago. First of all, when I was growing up, I watched your reports all the time. And when I think of the 70s, I think of you standing in front of the Dirksen Federal Building. I was there quite a bit. That's accurate. Yes, <laughs> I was. <laughs> and did you only cover the mob or what did you oh, do? Oh, no. I was, I was a general assignment reporter. I did the mob, of course, was one of the stories we did. Part of the reason I came when I came on board on the station, in fact, which is in 69, they were not doing anything in organized crime. And I'd worked over at WIND prior to that. I'd been interested in that for some time in other places. and knew there was certainly a market of that. The newspapers always played it a big. I had a great deal of interest in it. And they said, well, you can't really cover it because no visuals. I mean, these trials, uh, it'd be boring. And that's when they started using artists. I never thought of that before until about that period. Actually, the first time artists were successful was in that uh, 69 uh, Chicago 7 trial, when there was no way you could get any visuals other than that. That was a group that you know, took away the streets of Chicago, the Rennie Davises and the Abby Hoffmans and that, and they realized then there is a market for that. And then they started to listen to my ear, and they realized that they, with, uh, with the... Uh, Mob stories, there was a lot of interest. And, of course, the newspapers in those days played it up with John O'Brien, Ron Kozio, the Tribune, Art Patak, uh, I get it with other guys like that, uh, Bob Weedrick and that, uh, that made a lifetime of doing organized crime stories here in Chicago. And that's one of the reasons I started doing a lot of them. And because of that, it was unusual. I think that's when most people associated with me doing that story, kind of breed of stories. But I did many other kinds, obviously. Yeah, so what are some notable stories that you did that weren't mob-related? Well, everything. Polit- I did political stories a lot. Uh, some cri- a lot of criminal stories too that you could have. I think a fascinating one was, say, a breakout at the federal prison down at Marion, Illinois, in 1975. That prison was considered impregnable. It was a new Alcatraz. That's a story that had nothing to do with the mob per se, but was a crime story, kidnapping type stories and uh, things of that type of stories. You'd have some any of those. But political stories, I, I did cover, uh, first of all, I was moved into this market. I came here in Chicago from Des Moines for the simple reason the station wanted me to cover the Illinois legislature and the council, I, particularly the, the Illinois legislature, because I was doing that in Iowa so much. So I came in in that category and then eventually left the radio, left WIND to come over to uh, BBM. I wanted to go back onto television. I'd worked in television briefly, not briefly, but I worked at uh, WREX in TV in television, so I had TV experience. And I thought, frankly, with a growing family at that time, and uh, there was more money in television than radio. And last but not least, anybody's in this business that's on the air is a ham. Remember that they're a ham. And I got more. You want to get on the air? You, it, it was it was more satisfying than doing a radio story. It really was on a, on a good good TV piece. Well, did you start out in radio? Yes, I did. Actually, the first job I had. I'm talking about no commercial radio. Even in high school, I'd taken some uh, courses in radio, did some stuff at freelancing type of stuff. You could call it that, helping out of stations. So the first job I had was in 1958 when I went to a place called uh, a KBIZ in Ottawa, Iowa. I briefly worked there and then went up to uh, KXEL in Waterloo, Iowa, which, believe it or not, was a 50,000-watt radio station, and I worked there for over a year before I moved on. But uh, So I started in radio. And bear in mind, one of the reasons I got interested in this business, was, I may mention this when I was very young, and I'm talking about World War II, I grew up in an era 
I was too young to be in service in World War II, but I remember listening to the radio, being fascinated by the war like so many people were at that time. And I would hear guys like H.V. Carlton Bourne and these other commentators weighing, waxing opinions about the war and how things were going. And I was also interested in sports very much. Bill Stern did the football game, so radio fascinated me very, very much at that time. So I figured I might go and give that a shot. And then I went to college, but uh, that was before the TV era, really. I mean, radio didn't start to lose interest on me. I wanted to go into law school. I thought I was very active in debate in high school. We had a very good debate team that won some big major tournaments. And uh, that was my next goal. I think I'll do that. But then the Korean War came on, and that sort of interrupted those things. I was in the Air Force for four years. And by the time I got out, I didn't want to go. to My interest in law had waned. It also was a three-year course. I wanted to work for the government, as a matter of fact, and I got a master's degree in political science thinking I was going to get a government job, which I did apply and almost got, could have gotten, but I turned it down and went into radio instead. So that was a brief biography about me. I got hot. I, what caused me to do that, if I may mention, I, went to, I was waiting for a job in, in the Navy Department as a civilian in naval intelligence, but they took about five to six months to, to, wait, to vet me to see if I was, uh, could pass, <laughs> handle top-secret information, <laughs> if you could call it that. And in that period, I went down to Northwestern. They had a, a program down there for in the summertime on uh, radio TV news, and I got hooked, and they offered me a scholarship. And the next thing I knew, I went stayed down in Evanston and told the Navy that, thank you, but no thanks. I decided to pursue another career. And by the way, when I say Navy intelligence, don't get the idea that I was in Washington fighting communism or anything like that. The job I had would have been, for example, if you'd have gone into service with the Navy, you finished a boot camp at Great Lakes, and then you were going to be handling maybe a submariner school in New London or a some other school that created a top secret clearance. I'd go to your hometown and your school and so on and check on your on your background if you would be what they considered a safe bet and not to not to had problems if you could keep your mouth shut and things of that nature. <laughs> We're not communist or things of that nature. So that when I meant a naval intelligence, it sounded pretty fascinating. But basically, that's what I was doing. I was, I was vetting young people who were trying to get into various branches of the Navy that would be require a, a, a top-secret clearance. So that's what I was doing, and instead went with the, uh, took the job instead with the uh, television radio and went back to school. Well, when you were a kid and you were listening to radio, what kinds of things did you listen to? Oh, I just never, I was really a radio hound. First of all, I listened to the news back in the, and the war was going on then, and back in 42 when the Japanese were moving down the Malaya Peninsula. You'd write it on a map, and it was, it was very exciting, and things of nature, the Russian front, the Germans doing this and that. It it was a big deal, because uh, remember, there was no television, there was no internet, there was nothing like that at that time. You're, you were limited to what you could see and do with rationing on. And I got very fascinated in in the, in the war at that time, in the war, like many other young people were. So that my, that, that, as a result, that was a ripple effect for being interested in being in the media with radio and television. Although television didn't, didn't come at that time, obviously. There was no commercial TV where I was at that point. What was the beginning of television like? Well, it was fascinating. The first, actually, I remember the first I ever saw television was in 1948. I went to, I started college at Marquette University, and uh, WTMJ, I think it was down there, had about the only station, one or two stations there, and we'd watch wrestling matches and things of that nature. It was very primitive, but that's when you first saw the Magic Lantern, as we used to call it back at that period, and uh, eventually my hometown was Eau Claire, Wisconsin. We got television there, WAU Television, came on board in 1956. And my, my father pointed out to me at that time, who was not doing well physically, he said, this is a great thing for a shut-in. He sure as hell was right about that. 
So that's when I got acquainted with television, and I realized, watching the conventions particularly, the convention in 1952, which was very fascinating, the Republican one in Chicago, where the forces of the Dewey and uh, the Dewey forces going against the Taft forces and nominating Eisenhower is so fascinating. I said, I got to get it. That's when I got really interested in that business. But I'll tell you what did it before that. Again, I mentioned I was at Marquette briefly. I remember walking down Wisconsin Avenue, which is in downtown Milwaukee, and there was an appliance store I walked by, and there was a big crowd standing in front of the uh, of the building there looking in the window. And what was going on in the window there watching television? of the crime crime hearings by Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee, who barnstormed around the country into big cities, what he called exposing crime, the syndicate, how big the syndicate was and how powerful it was. It's very fascinating. He went to Chicago with Ricardo and company in New York. The big story was a guy named Frank Costello, who was called the prime minister of the underworld. And what caught, <laughs> what caught so much interest in that, Costello urged the committee senators if they could avoid shooting his face, only could shoot his hands. And so you saw the camera shooting his hands all the time. And it was, it, it was very fascinating. And those things, the convention of 52 and the uh, 1950 hearings by the Kefauver Committee really whetted my appetite. I said, boy, that is exciting. And I could see that's the future, the wave of the future. I really thought it was, and it was, of course, as we know now. Was it hard to get into the business back then? Oh, are you kidding? These people today don't realize what it was because there was no Internet in all these cable stations now. And you've got kids starting with CNN in Washington or one of the other cable stations like that. It's a lot different. Remember, at that time, if you want to go into news, I'll give you an example. I was interested in doing that, but basically it had staff announcers. If you went to the stations like, say, in the Twin Cities, WCCO in Minneapolis, KSDP in St. Paul, or the ones down in, certainly in Chicago with Faye from the company here, like BBM, the people that read the news in those days were strictly what they called news anchors. They were readers. They read news. They were not news people. They were announcers. And the reporters would go out and get stories, but they didn't do stories like today. They would say, for example, on the news that, uh, say I was working at Channel 2 when Flynn was in his heyday and a newscast was 15 minutes long. Uh, John Drummond was out and talked to Senator Percy at the airport, bang, and that would be about it for about 15 seconds. But you didn't do, nowadays, of course, we do stories. As you know, all the reporters do stories, stand-ups, things like that. That was unknown at that time. It was unknown at that time. It was a lot of different business television. It was harder, to, very hard to get into, unless you wanted to start maybe as a writer or something like that and hope to get into the on the air. But they used to always say in those days, look, if you want to be an on the air person, I'm talking about television now. At that time, we're going back in the 50s. You're better to go off to what they call the tank towns, the smaller markets. Get experience on the tube so you can show your people here in Chicago or New York or wherever it is what you can do on television, what you do on a stand-up, how you do, how you look. And, think, and that, by the way, is important, too. So it was a different business entirely than today, no question about that. What about radio? Was it hard to get into back then? Oh, the major market, yeah, because radio was a big thing. But, of course, it was more radio. It was easier. One thing that helped me. It's not the big story. In those days, in the, in the 50s and the 40s, in smaller markets, particularly smaller towns, and I can call Des Moines small, maybe not smaller, Waterloo, Iowa, some of the places I worked, radio, local news was a big, big story. And that was true here in Illinois. And people liked, whether they're farmers or what they were, they would listen to local news. Radio was big in those markets. They did, and they realized that, that they, meaning the people that owned those stations, that it could be a money-making proposition. And so all of them had pretty good news departments. I'll give you an example. When I worked at WHO in Des Moines, we had 12 people there working in news. Part of it did a little television. You know how many BBM radio had at that time? It had a maximum either three or five. That was all. We dwarfed the Chicago market on news people. 
And I came in, I could repeat that, because when I went to Chicago to work at WIND, the two biggest newsrooms in that market at that time in 1958 was WCFL and WIND. It dwarfed the other the radio stations, the network stations didn't have many people in news. As I said, BBM, I think, had three to five is all at that time. That was it. So your better chance to radio start, as I indicate, radio was big in the smaller markets. Radio news I'm talking about now was that you go anywhere, whether it's Iowa, Illinois, you go out in the boondocks. Well, that's the boondocks to some people, I should say. And that would also be uh, opportunities for, for getting started in broadcasting. No question about it. Well, was it common back then when you were a kid to be so into news, or was that not typical? Yeah, although not, although I tell you, yeah, to a degree, but this is what was different than today. It was, I think, the war. World War II was fascinating for everybody, whether they'd read the newspapers or listened to the radio. Uh, it was a different era. People now, of course, get their news, if they do get news. I, I don't think young people pay much attention to the news today compared to what it was, and, and that's with the internet and everything. But at that time, people were glued to the tube. And I say the tube, yeah, the tube and the radio at first, and then initially TV when it was primitive came in. It was quite, when TV first started, of course, it was fascinating. People, oh my God, I've got a TV set. And then when they say, I got color TV, or I can get this station and that. So that, that, that of course, was a big deal too. But in radio, everybody, listened. you could listen. I remember where I lived in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I grew up, you could hear the 50,000 watt stations like GN, it was Clear Channel, as they called it that day, 720 on your dial. You'd hear the dance music from New Orleans and so on and so forth from WWL and things like that. So radio was not just located to that, that market, but also around the country. When I worked at WHO in Des Moines, 1040 on the dial, 50,000 watts, Clear Channel at that time. It boomed all over the country. And they had an overnight show there with a truck driver show that got numerous. They got great numbers because of that. And in fact, my biggest claim to fame is there were two 50,000 watt radio stations in Iowa. And I worked at both of them. <laughs> there you go. KXCL in Waterloo and WHO. Wisconsin, on the other hand, there's not one 50,000 watt station in Wisconsin. There's quite a few in Illinois because of Chicago. But a lot of stations, uh, city, states don't have any 50,000 watt radio stations or one or two at the most. Well, was your goal to get to Chicago? Not particularly, per se, no, believe it or not, my goal really at that time, because I grew up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, was to get to the Twin Cities as a job, as a talent on the air. And uh, I thought, uh, believe it or not, I could get into the Chicago market. I couldn't get into the Twin City market, which I wanted because I'd gone to school there. My mother lived up in that area. I wanted to get closer home, and they paid a pretty good price, pretty good deal, but yet I, I never, never got in there. So that was my goal then, and then two opportunities came up in Chicago. One, I turned down, believe it or not, BBM. I turned down because I thought that I had the CCO job in Minneapolis all locked up at that time, and I found out that it was no dice. <laughs> Somebody else was picked instead. And then I said, I called back to the people at WBM, which is Wally Bishop was his name. It's too late now. We hired another guy. So I, I, next time it came around, uh, WIND called me, and I decided to go into work in Chicago. I had to make that move from a smaller market to uh, Chicago because of financial considerations mainly. I had three kids at that time. Three small children and uh, cost of living, of course, what it is is not like today different, but uh, you need money. And I wasn't, you don't make the smaller markets, you're not going to make that kind of money. That's the thing as a reporter, you're not going to make that kind of money. That's why so many of them leave. Plus, the stories are a little more boring, too. Chicago's more exciting. You had the daily years covering Major, Major Richard Daly, it was a thrill. It was really a, it was great going to the city council meetings all the time when you could go there. there. Daly was a colorful guy. One of the last of the kingmakers, so to speak, and going to see, visit daily, not visit him, I mean, do stories on him was always interesting. I remember that. Chicago was always fascinated because of the, the whole thing about Chicago. Of course, it had the mob, it had everything there. 
that you'd want in a big city. So Chicago and I was ever one of the most exciting towns to be in news-wise because in 68, when I was there, you had the convention riots. You had the riots, of course, with involving Dr. King in the spring. You had the last years of the Daly administration. Well, not last year, so he was still in his heyday, which is uh, there's only about three or four cities that had uh, machine tools, really machine machines operating like that. Kansas City did at one time, and Memphis, Tennessee, New Jersey, and, of course, New York. But uh, Chicago was one of the last. Of, last of the Mohicans, and that's what that made it so fascinating. And the mob stuff always interested me, because the Chicago mob, or syndicate, call it what you will, outfit, is probably, frankly, more, the most powerful mob faction in the country. And you're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're talking about New York? You can't know. You know what you're talking about. I'm talking about, the, as I do, because Chicago had a monolithic mob, only one family here headed by Tony Accardo most of the time. New York had five families. So individually, they didn't have the nozzle that Chicago had. Chicago had, at one time, the Chicago mob, and I'm talking now to investigators I heard with people ranging from the Labor Department to the FBI to the ATF to the IRS, controlled most everything west of the Mississippi River. A few of them were maybe open cities, maybe Vegas, but Chicago was a prominent one there. Chicago really was the most powerful organized crime faction in the country. And following them, that's when I was here a couple of years. I found that I found the the stories of the Chicago mob very fascinating. There's no question about that. The trials, the tribulations, and the homicides that resulted sometimes. That those are stories that were were big stories. No question about it. But did you know about all that before you came to Chicago? Oh, I always had a fascinating. I tell you, when I was a little kid, and we lived in Eau Claire, as I pointed out, there was a man who was a relative of some neighbors of ours who would come up every Christmas. His name was Robinson. And he worked for the Public Works Department of Chicago Sanitary District, as we call it. The Streets and Sand. <laughs> Streets and Sand, exactly, which was all mobbed up at that time. And he would tell me these stories about Chicago. This is when Ed Kelly was the mayor. This was a different era before Accardo. Well, Accardo was coming into the fore, and those stories really fascinated me about Chicago. There's no question about it. We also got, my father got the Chicago Tribune there, so we were always, we were always connected to Chicago. I always read that paper, and definitely was excited. A lot of things were exciting there that happened in Chicago. None of the size, and not just because of the mob, the sports teams, the Cubs, the White Sox, you name it. They had it was always a lot, a lot of excitement in Chicago. This the size of the, well, I stayed the first time I was in Chicago. I stayed at the Stevens Hotel. At that time, it was the world's largest. And my dad took me down. When I was eleven years old. We stayed at the Stevens Hotel, which is now the Hilton, by the way, on Michigan Avenue. At that time, it was the world's largest hotel. Later, I guess it's some hotel in Russia that soon beat it, but not at that time. And I found that so fascinating. I remember looking out the window of that, opening the window in the hotel room, looking down all night. I didn't sleep. I was so excited hearing all the, the horns and that, watching the vehicles go up and down Michigan Avenue. <laughs> well, can you describe what it was like to be in the city during the high point of the machine? All this deal with people who are connected. In other words, you wanted to get a job, say, with, as you said, streets and sand or whatever it might be that uh, you'd go to see your ward committeeman or you'd go to see your alderman. And necessarily, well, I've got the skills in this field, I can do this and that. But you'd find out, said, who is this guy? Is he connected at all? Yeah, he works. They talk to one of the precinct guys. You could say, well, this guy Drummond's okay. He votes straight down. He's a daily guy. He's loyal to us. I'd hire him. Okay, bang, you're hired. That was very, that was so fascinating. The machine was so fascinating to show. It was almost like a, a dictatorship, I, in a way. I mean, the way Daly controlled it. And before Daly, you had, of course, you had Ed Kelly and that group there, and going back to Thompson. So the city hall has, for years, really controlled Chicago. Not as much, not much to date. The machine is pretty well busted up compared to what it was. But it was very, that was fascinating. Going to see, listen, going to see Daly at, the, at a city council meeting, there was pressure on you. I'll tell you why. You cover that meeting, 
with the, these are talking about film in those days, not tape, videotape. So he had those cameras on there, and you had to be careful because you never knew when Daly was going to explode and get hotter than hell from the so-called minority aldermen. And I use the word minority aldermen. That didn't mean they were African-American. The minority meant they were, they were not connected to Daly. Some of them, uh, like uh, Simpson, from who teaches now at the University of Illinois Chicago, people like that, were Leon Dupre, who's from the Hyde Park, they give Daly a hard time, and Daly's face would get redder than can be, and you know he's going to explode. And I remember one time we were there, and we ran out of film. And from that time on, we had two crews down there all the time, just in case Daly blew up and we could not miss it. We had the two crews. That's, that, that's a fact. Because Daly was a story. Daly was the story. There's no question about that. He ran the city. What he did counted. Bang. And it was fascinating to watch him. There's no denying that. Yeah. How would you say the machine came to be established like that? Well, it goes back, I think, because they're they smart. Okay, let's suppose you came over. We're going back now in the 20s, even the 30s. You come over. You come over from Poland, and you, you get into a house maybe in the northwest side or the southwest side at that time. And uh, the daily representative would come to your house and say, Hi, I'm Mr. Drummond. I'm your precinct worker here. Might, if you have any problems, if your garbage isn't picked up like you think, if you're having trouble with the police, you don't think you're getting a fair shake from our officials, give us a call. We want to make sure your your streets are shoveled, and we want to make sure that your garbage is picked up, and so on and so forth. And so they were smart. They gave them what they call goods and services. And they offered also job opportunities. You realize you play ball with the organization, you could get a good job with a great pension. And that's what they were so successful in doing. That's why people, those elections were not rigged. They didn't need to be. The people really supported them because they did things for them. They were able to do that. Goods and services, they were smart to do that. Say, what can I do for you? You have a problem on your garbage? We'll check that right now, and so on and so forth. So that's what they provided, and that's that meant vote, votes, and that meant votes, and they got votes that way. No question about it. When you were covering all these things, especially the machine politics, did you ever feel negative, or was it fascinating, or what? It was. It, I took it to, I remember one time, <laughs> Daly, it was so from I mentioned Daly, I'm going to mention this story. I remember stopping him. Uh, it used to be, the, but he, he'd go up to the fifth floor office, this one almost every day, mandatory. He'd try to get him, what does Daly think about this? What does he think about that? Not at a formal news conference, but he'd try to get him in the hallway when he'd either go into his office on the fifth floor or when he left to come home at 4.35 o'clock. We were out there one time waiting for Daly to come. It turned out we were the we, meaning the station two, channel two at that time, was the only one there. He came out and I asked him, I thought, a legitimate question. The head of the Republican Party in the county at that time was Edmund Kuharski, and he had made some charge about the Daly machine, some graft and corruption. And I said, Mr. Mayor, can I speak a minute? Yes. He, I said, I said, Mr. Kuharski is alleging that do this or that. He turned on me. His face got so red I thought he was going to assault me. He turned around and he said, you're asinine. And then he walked away. I remember that. And the news director sent me a letter. thought that was great. Great television, I guess he thought. But we stood up to him. But the daily, I don't mean that that was the only, that was the only time I had a so-called run-in with Daly. But he would be hot. <laughs> but I recall that now very well, very much so. Well, so you didn't feel like uh, discouraged by all the stuff you were seeing about humanity or anything? Frankly, I think I was a realist by that time. I was no kid when I was doing that, and I'd worked in other market suit as also politicians or politicians, whether they're in Iowa or Illinois or New York. Look at the machine in New York and so on and so forth. Frisco, those areas, or some of them. I was in the Air Force for four years. I stationed all over the country and saw a lot of that. So a disillusion in the degree, it was a disillusion in that respect from the poor guy that wanted to run as an independent or move up the ladder, and he wasn't going to play ball with the politics. He thought there were things wrong, things going on in his ward. He reported him. He would he'd be shot down. He, he, he couldn't do it. He couldn't cut the mustard that way. 
And that part, yes, you're right. You you have to be honest with you. You could say, well, these guys are colorful. It's great television. Yes, it is. But at the same time, you knew that a lot of this stuff was not right. It was certainly not right at all. And the Republican Party didn't have any chance to get anybody out. Daly was running the show. There was no question about it. I think he really, I think Daly really liked the city. I think he tried to, he was very proud of what he's done. He was a big booster of Chicago. But as a lot of people said, he did too much stuff downtown, didn't care about the people, particularly the minority people and the blacks at that time, and that's accurate. And I was there when they finally had a, he called it a rebellion, when one of the, several of the aldermen began to object to Daly and police brutality and things like that. So things had started to change even before he died in 1976. And that, by the way, was one of the biggest stories to cover when Daly passed away in 1976. It's just like he'd been a mayor forever to some people. He's a mayor. He called him Mr. Mayor. And, of course, he was stricken with his heart attack in December, just before Christmas. And that was a, I remember that was a major story that day that happened. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, what were other mayors like after that for you? Well, you had, important? of course, well, eventually then Belandic came in. Uh, and Belandic, by the way, what I was told by people that knew finances, that Belandic probably knew city finances, municipal finances better than anybody. He was sharp as a tack on that. But he lacked personality. He lacked the drive as a candidate. And, of course, as you know, he lost to Jane Byrne in 1979. You know the facts of life. We had that big snowstorm, uh, a series of snowstorms. Starting in January, it was hell, as I can remember that winter. Not only was there snow, but record amount. It was 90-some inches of snow fell that year in record cold days. We had a lot of days well below zero, and they stayed well below zero. And uh, Blantic went to Florida or somewhere south on a vacation right, when, the, when all these blizzards hit. And Byrne was smart enough, her people were smart enough to really ram that. Hey, look, I'm here. Belandic doesn't care about you people. He's down in Florida. And that, I think, was a big issue on that. And that's one reason that Byrne won that race, because of that. I think it was a big, big, big issue. And then he had Byrne, who was first woman mayor of Chicago. She was uh, volatile. And then he had Harold Washington and so on and so forth. And I don't, in the latter years, latter years, I didn't cover the council that much. It was, it was just in the daily era. Just as well I did. I liked, the, I liked the daily era better. And I did do more organized crime stories as I went on. And you mentioned that. And I found that they were very fascinating to cover. And I found that even more fascinating than, 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 than daily. Why did you say, why, how come the daily era was better? Well, Daly himself was colorful. I mean, uh, granted, the city council, we used to call it, I did, the Supreme Soviet. I mean, the, it, was a, it was a rubber stamp in those days when they met. And the others, as it got eventually, that was, isn't the true today. I mean, they're more independent. But because Daly was much more colorful, I mentioned Belandic was sort of, uh, he may have been a great municipal financer, but he wasn't a very colorful guy. Uh, Jane Byrne, was, you never know what the hell she was going to do. I'll give you an example in a Jane Byrne story. I'll tell you what I thought, in my own opinion, what happened. She appointed a man by the name of uh, Joe DeLeonardi as uh, the head of homicide, as the acting uh, superintendent of police. She had a vacancy, and she uh, she hired him. And uh, I recall his interim, he was interim. That was right the year before they had the uh, Taste of Chicago down in Grand Park. They had it over at the Navy Pier. And I was down there covering that story because Byrne was going to be there, and Joe D. came first. So we got some shots. As you were, Jane Byrne was there first. We wanted to cover her, and we were getting ready to leave, and Joe D. and Lenardi came. And the crowd swarmed around Joe D. like he was a Hollywood celebrity. And I don't think there's any question about it that Byrne was so happy seeing that people swarmed around Joe D. and not her. And that was one of the reasons he was canned. <laughs> That's my opinion, but I think it's got a lot of validity to it. When you're covering these people like Daly, did you get a reputation with other people too throughout the city? Well, I think I got a reputation of being fair. I mean, when you were there that long doing those many stories, and don't get me the idea, as I say, I was no political icon because after the Daly era, 
I pretty much did not cover much of the uh, much of the city hall as I did before. I still would go over there, people would, but it was the daily era that I was there almost the time, and we spent a lot of time in that period. So I sort of drifted on. I was doing more other stories, and I was doing more. There was more organized crime stories that were coming up at that time, some major trials, major cases, major homicides, if I can call them that, and that was. I, I found that even more fascinating. And of course, I always had that long interest in organized crime. I started, I tell you, I think I pointed this out to you when I first came here. I told these people, hey, let's, I said, there's a market for this stuff, and I think I was fairly knowledgeable about the Chicago outfit. Let's give it a shot. And they realized then when we had one or two trials at the beginning with, yes, there's good reaction. People like those shows, and uh, they're, they're fascinated by the mob. There's no ifs and buts about it in Chicago. At one time, the mob is not like it was, of course. That's gone now. But in that heyday, uh, people were very fa- were fascinated by organized crime in Chicago. No question about it, whether it's Sam Giancana or Cardo, whoever those guys were. I always remember going by Ocardo's house, always trying, hoping to get, get an interview him by over when he lived in River Forest. He lived several places there, but uh, we swung by there every day. So let's go by uh, JB's house, that's what we called him. And he never was outside. Not that he would have talked anyway, because I did follow him one time. Ocardo uh, down to Florida on a trial there, and uh, he the only thing he'd say, "Good morning, gentlemen." He was very pleasant, but he never would never talk. Never would talk compared to most of them wouldn't, for that matter. But what? he was a hefty mitten gentleman about it. <laughs> The most fascinating guy I've ever heard of the covered, if I could call Carter. Why is that? Would be a card. Because he was, uh, because how many organized crime figures you are uh, mythical about? So going back to the Capone era, John Gotti, all these other people, he was probably, as I say, I think there's one man, in my opinion, and I'm going to be backed by other experts on this, I think, and I'm not an expert, but I think he was the most powerful organized crime figure that America's probably ever seen. Because when he was head of the Chicago organization, and remember, he didn't go out on a pine box. He was never his main post. He never spent a night in jail, despite efforts by the federal government to imprison him. He escaped every time, and I covered all of his trials. Other than the first one, I wouldn't. I didn't cover the one in 1960, but other than that, I covered all of his trials, and he always skated every time, whether it was in Florida or before a committee in Washington D.C., where he's up before a Senate investigating committee, or wherever he was. I went out as far as I went to Palm Springs one time, tried to get pictures of him out there. But we, he lived out there in the winter. But he, he fascinated. If this one man you say that fascinated me, I would be a cardinal. That how was he able to come up? He came by the roots. He was able to stay in power for so long in a business like that. So many people get assassinated. His his man that he succeeded, Sam Giancana was killed, of course, in 1975 in one of the most biggest uh, biggest mob hits of all time here in Chicago. In fact, it probably was the biggest one, not the not the Spilatro brothers, but the uh, Giancana one. And may I tell you a little story about this, I'm, since I'm getting long-winded here, but I'm going to mention, Giancana came back, was down, he, had been, he was running the mob for a while. Cardo gave it up voluntarily. They didn't boost him. He got tired of the heat, turned it over to Giancana, and then Giancana got in hot water with the government, they had him up before a federal, before a grand federal grand jury, and he took the fifth so much, and uh, they ended, he ended up on con- being charged with contempt of court. They immunized him, but he wouldn't do anything about it. He spent his time in the county jail in a scandal by there. He was living high off the hog in the county jail, and then he went, he went to Mexico, Cuernavaca, New Mexico, Mexico, not New Mexico, which is a suburb of Mexico City. And they threw him out, finally, out Mexican authorities threw him out and came back here. And he was scheduled to testify before a hearing in Washington about the murder of uh, the attempts by the mob to assassinate Fidel Castro and possibly connections to the assassination of John Kennedy. At any rate, a couple of days before he was scheduled to go, a short time before he was scheduled to go, he was murdered here in in his home in, in Oak Park, in suburban Oak Park, where he lived on Winona Street. 
And that was, of course, a major story, a national story, because not only he had been a big mobster, but because of the fact his name had surfaced in these inve- investigations nationally about, A, the assassination attempt on, on, on Fidel Castro's supposed assassination attempt, and that he might have been involved with the Chicago mob at the time with the murder of John Kennedy in Dallas, Texas, 1963, which I don't believe. But anyway, so he gets murdered. And here, here's a break. First of all, the story. For years, people have always, there's never been any proof of this. There was always this talk. The unholy alliance between the Chicago mob, police, city officials, and the judge, judicial branch. Well, when he died, I was, look, I'll tell you a story he got in. I think this is one of, this is a big story. Didn't get the play maybe at the time. It should have. I was able to get into Sam Jean Conner's house about two days after he, uh, the funeral. And I was able to see a list of people who had gone to the wedding of uh, Giancana's eldest daughter, Antoinette Giancana. So what's the big deal on that? The big deal on that, it listed all of the guests. Now, the fact that Tony Accardo was a guest there, that uh, Jackie Cerrone or somebody was a guest, that's hardly news for the I assume that. After anybody's name would be a, a number was figured, it was listed there, and we assumed, I think with good logic, that that number indicated how much they gave in cash at the wedding reception. On that name... Were aldermen, judges, and county commissioners. The most famous of them probably was Vito Marzullo, who was a colorful first alderman from the 25th Ward. He they all denied. I don't know how my name could have been on that list. I had nothing. I didn't go to the wedding. I didn't give any gifts. All that type of baloney like that. But it showed when push came to shove that there was. I think that was the best example of the closest of the mob and these public officials. Back in 1975, that was quite a story. And by the way, the Giancana murder has never been solved. That's still a open book, so to speak, on that. How was he literally killed? Well, what happened was he'd come back. Giancana had some health issues. Uh, he had some problems with um, in his stomach, uh, gallbladder. I believe he was down in Houston, Texas, for a gallbladder operation, and came back. And he, the day he came back, that night they had sort of a get together with his with his family and some of his close mob friends, the few that were left. They came over to the house, and it happened that the police intelligence unit was sitting out in front of that house that night for a while. They saw the party people all leave at 11 o'clock or whatever it is, and then they saw one man came back in about 11.30, and they were called on, off on another story. Some of them else had to go out and leave, and with good reason. There was no reason to say there was nothing. To, how did they know he's going to be shot? And what happened? Whoever killed Giancana let him in the house. There's no question about it. No forced entry. He had a he had a houseman. They called him a houseman then, who probably came down, opened the door, and let him come in. The houseman lived way up upstairs. And th- what they did find when the authorities got there, when they found that Giancana had been shot about seven times in the head, with a 22 uh, with a silencer on it, was the fact that somebody had been, Giancana had been cooking some sausage and greens on the dish, a dish that obviously a man who just had gallbladder surgery could not have eaten. So that gave credence to the theory that, A, that Giancana let the man in who was a friend, and he was cooking him a snack. He sure as hell wouldn't have done that, and the, the guy was a killer. So he was killed by someone who knew him and trusted him, and out the door in the case has never been solved. Now, the theory that, of course, went wild, in New York and Washington, the story was he was probably killed because he was going to spill the beans about the outfit's dealings with uh, with the Kennedy assassination, spilling the beans about how they tried to work on kill Fidel Castro with an exploding cigar or something like that. That's all baloney. The real facts of life on that was when I went to the funeral, there was, nobody showed up. Usually at a mob funeral in those days, a man of that stature, Giancana's stature, they would have had almost everybody involved in the outfit to pay their respects to go either to the funeral home or to the funeral itself. And that didn't happen, other than two people. 
They were there, Chuck English and a guy named uh, Butch Plazzi, who, by the way, might have been, might have been the authorities think was a killer. Anyway, but what happened, in other words, that case has never been solved. And by the way, how fascinating, when I used to give some speeches, there was always one question that was asked for years, who killed Sam Giancana? And the answer is, we don't know officially. That's we don't know, even to this day. Now, how did you get into his house? Like, did you know people in... I had to keep doing that. If I told you that, I would right. not, uh, somebody let me in that was uh, w- right. with the authorities, and that would be his job. He would have been canned if, he did, if I had made it known, because I ended up almost being thrown in jail. Because how did I get a hold of those documents? How did this somebody got in the house? And that was the question they asked me. And uh, the station told me, the manager of the station told me we had a meeting. I said, now you could very well be held in contempt. If you don't answer that question, you could be put into county jail. And I said, I got no choice. I can't very well do that, betray that. I'm washed up if I do. People would never confide in me if I let let it out. And to make a long story short, they switched the judges on that case, and the judge refused to uh, throw me in the can, so to speak, and dropped it in that sense. So I didn't do any time, if you want to put it that way. Not that it had been a rough time, because if I had been held in contempt, I would have been in a safer part of the jail, I think, like most people. But How? that never happened. But it was, it was definitely a threat. And the, the, when the general manager calls you in his office and says, we gotta, what are you going to do? We're very serious about this. They had the lawyer there and everything. said, so you're going to have to, you're going to probably, nothing we can do. You can appeal it. I'm probably not going to do it. You, can, you could very well be incarcerated. But it didn't happen. How did you develop your sources anyway? Well, by trust. Obviously, when you come here, I've been here quite a while. And I think you got to know people when I'd covered trials or covered, I did a lot of police stories. And actually, oh, God, when I first was there, that's what we were doing almost all the time. And I mentioned covering the city council. That's one thing. There's a lot of police shootings in those days, more than there is today. I've talked about cops being shot. And uh, you get to you get to see these guys in the street. They they come up to you and say, "We'll tell you this. We're looking for this guy, but don't give us a, don't say how you got it or anything like that." With a trust, you got the reputation. I think I did with a lot of people that were in law enforcement that I could be trusted. I'd be fair and shake, and would be maybe even partial to, them, but I would not squeal. And I'm, so as a result, you build that up through the years, and people will tell you things that they normally wouldn't be a new guy or a guy they don't trust. There's no question about that. I'll tell you, I've got a story that not a story, but came out through luck one time when uh, a bunch of uh, bookmakers were being murdered. And uh, we found out later a guy named Joe Ferriola was, they were really making these guys, they were operating, the bookmakers were operating what I call independently. Anything they made, they made on their own. And the mob didn't like that. If you're a successful bookmaker, you got to contribute what they call a street tax to the mob to enable to keep in business. And a couple of these guys, not a couple, there's about eight, about 13 to 15 so-called independent bookmakers were being murdered. And obviously that was a big story. And I remember we'd get calls. See, you get a lot of calls also when I say police, when people call in, you get a lot of crackpots calling with stories too. But this one guy called me up. He says, I'll tell you what happens sometimes, particularly a guy that knows what's going on, outfit guys, they'd see you on the air pontificating. About say, well, I said, well, here's what I think happened or what police tell me. And they said, this guy doesn't know shit. And they'll call you up on the phone and, and say, you don't know this, you know, beans, this is what happened. Even though they're not supposed to do that, they can't resist to say you're an idiot, see? And this guy called up. He said, I'll tell you who's responsible for these murders. You tell the, your coppers it's Butch Petroselli. I never heard of Butch Petroselli at that time. So I happened to call Area 6 Police. I said, well, we get a lot of calls. They know that. Most of them are cracked. But I got one guy called. I don't know if it's been means or nothing. I, he said a guy named Butch Petroselli was one of the guys that were doing the shooting. And all of a sudden, the Area 6 detectives said, wait a minute. Who, who, who was this guy? Who called? I knew right away that that was obviously that was the real McCoy. And frankly, everyone was convicted on most of those murders that um, I was on the right trail. Like, I was not, that was not baloney he gave me, and we found out later that he was one of the men. So the gall of these guys, uh, Harry Alleman and Butch Petroselli were the two guys who worked together, Harry and Butch. 
that uh, they came into it on Halloween night on, on Mama Luna's restaurant. I think it was on Fullerton, a pizza place. They walked in there with a mask on. Well, that wasn't so unusual, I guess, because it was Halloween, and they're looking for a guy named Mr. Reidiger, who was a bookmaker and independent. They came right up to his table, pulled out a sawed-off shotgun, and blew him away right there and walked right out. So the audacity of those guys. But that uh, that was quite a story at the time about uh, Petroselli. And Petroselli himself, by the way, like a lot of these guys, ended up being uh, shot by the mob himself. He double-crossed it. They didn't trust him or something on some money deal. Whatever it was, he was killed himself later on. So that's a tough business to be in. If you want to be a hitman sometime, and I'll name some others like Bill Dauber and others that were killed. Some of their best hitmen themselves ended up on the others on the slab as well, being shot. <laughs> tough business to be in if you want to be a hitman. Remember that. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And John Drummond has written some books. One of them is 30 Years in the Trenches, covering crooks, characters, and capers. Were you ever afraid that they would try to get you or any even? Not, you know, number one, I hate to say I had a diplomatic community. First of all, I don't think I did that much why I'd be a target, but let's suppose I was. I think that in the Accardo era, he let that go off, let that those criticisms from news people go off like rain off a duck's back. Because if you if you ended up hitting those guys or doing something to them, extorting working them over, things of that nature, it could be counterproductive. Because there'd be a consortium of news people on your ass, and you would have so much trouble with uh, with the law enforcement people. Stations would put such heavy pressure on. Can you imagine? Drummond was slain. Would they like that at the station? Probably so, because look at the numbers they could get on that. First night, Drummond slain. The next night, new details in Drummond murder. Third night, reward in Drummond slain, and so on and so forth. Informant comes forward with information on Drummond slain. Would they get great numbers? So I sometimes wonder if they'd like that or not. But I can tell you right now, in Chicago, and I did do some work on this and been the background in this, and the number of news people here that have been killed by organized crime. There's only one in Chicago in the modern era. Now, you talk about this guy, Jake Lingle, who worked for the Tribune, going back to the Capone era, was shot to death at the Illinois Railroad Station down in the subway station down on Randolph Street. And that looked like, my gosh, the mob is to see what the, how ruthless they took out a Tribune reporter. And Colonel McCormick, who, of course, was running the show at that time, was enraged that one of his men was slain by the Capone mob. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Then they had to find out the facts of life, that Jake Lingle was on the, on the, on the Capone payroll. So I don't count that as a, new, a regular legitimate news guy going down the drain. But there have been the only one in Chicago that I know of is a woman by the name of Molly Zalko, who worked for a Joliet for an independent for a newspaper in Will County, based in Joliet. It was a Will County weekly newspaper. And she'd been doing some stories on organized crime in Will County gambling dens, where some gambling dens were located, that the cops were looking the other way, and so on and so forth. Molly Zelko disappeared in 1957, and she's never been found since. Oh, about 12 years or 13 years ago, maybe it was more than that, I remember we got a call from the Joliet Police Department. They were digging up a sidewalk in downtown Joliet, Somebody had tipped him that Molly Zelko's body was in there, but to make a long story short, it was not, and they found nothing. They had another case. This had nothing to do locally, but you had a case in Arizona by the name of Don Bowles, B-O-L-L-E-S, who was a reporter for the Arizona Republic, and had done a series of stories of organized crime infiltrating into the Phoenix area. He went to start his car one day, and as he turned over his ignition, he was blown to smithereens. And then what happened was, because he was a reporter looking into the mob, a consortium, of newspaper reporters from all over the country descended 
on Maricopa County, which was Phoenix's there, and put squeeze. It gave so much publicity and gave a lot of uh, bad ink to the mob down there that uh, guys, uh, killers were later, I think, apprehended and, 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 and sentenced, I think. Only one other one that was never solved was a guy named Victor Reisel. He was a, he was a labor columnist in New York, worked for one of the New York papers. And he'd gotten under the skin of some of the guys there, the mob, one of the New York families. He's walking down the street one night, and a guy comes up to him. This is for you, Vic. And he has a few acid in his face and blinded Victor Rizal. He was blinded the rest of his life, but he continued to work as a reporter. So basically, there's not many cases where the reporter is, well, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about, again, we had a case in Las Vegas last month. A guy named Jeff German was killed who was an investigative reporter, did a lot of stuff on the mob, although I don't think his slain was connected to that. He had done some stories on some corruption on some guy who was not mob-connected, but he was killed. But there's not that many reporters that have been killed by the mob because of the fact it stirs up such a hornet's nest it had been in the past. It's not worth it. Don't do it. You're going to get more heat by doing this. And that's what I say. You've got diplomatic immunity to a degree. That doesn't mean you get some calls sometimes from guys that were not exactly very happy about it. Indicated your relatives or your parents were a four-legged creature or something like that. But other than that, no. You know, before you mentioned, I forgot now, the, the big boss, the mob boss, and you said he never got convicted. Why is that? First of all, he was, I shouldn't I say he was convicted once. I'm going to go back on that. In 1960, in the federal trial, by the way, the prosecutor, the guy named Richard Ogilvy at that time, who then became governor. That's the way they move forward politically. But anyway, he was convicted. He said, oh, no, wait a minute, you're wrong. He's convicted. But he was out on bond, and then they had a re- an appellate court threw it out. They tried it again, and Carter was acquitted. That's an incredible record. He never was convicted of things. And I covered some of his trials, a gun case. He walks out of there grinning like a fox, of course, in the canary, so to speak. Well, he had good lawyers, and remember that at that time, it was hard to convict organized crime. That's why people didn't come forward to testify in an organized crime case. He's going to get off, and they're going to come and get me. But that changed in 1970 when you had that RICO statute, when the omnibus crime bill was passed, and it allowed the government to use wiretapping a great deal more. All the trials, I cover in one trial, I'll give you an example, in 1982, Roy Williams, who was head of the Teamster Union, Joey Lombardo, who was a mob boss here in Chicago, Alan Dorfman, another mob-related guy, several others, went on trial trying to get shake down a senator to get passage of some legislation. Well, the government would not have won that case if it had not been that they had recorded, they, meaning the FBI, had recorded conversations involving the defendants like Dorfman, Williams, and, uh, and Lombardo. He said incriminating things on tape. And that was the first case, to my knowledge, that the government used wiretaps in a major case to get a conviction. Without those taps wiretaps, they would not have got a conviction there. But that changed, things like that started to change. And then the code of emerta, the code of silence, you never turned in, you were not a rat, you never came forward. Some of these mob guys were offered deals by the government, and now with the government starting to win successfully, they started to cooperate. And you went to a lot of trials, and there'd be somebody singing like a canary, and that hurt them a great deal. So the combined of those things, the federal government, and the omnibus crime bill, particularly the wire, allowing the wiretapping and that stuff, that really was a body blow to organized crime. That really hurt them a lot. Because you'll notice all those trials in New York, not just Chicago, where they had they played wire. You know, they tap everybody. They tap phones. They tap cars. They take houses. You got what it is. And people love to hear that stuff, by the way. <laughs> That's why the courtrooms are jammed with court buffs. They love to hear those tapes. I think it's, it's so did the news people and so did the public in that sense. That's the main reason they started. Starting with that 82 trial, which was the first one, to my knowledge, that a major trial that used recordings as a source of evidence, things started to go downhill for the mob in that sense. 
Somebody told me that you also used to do um, weekend sports sometimes. Yes, we did that a lot. We'd done sports before we did that. What happened was I, I did it briefly, periodically, when Johnny Morris, who was our sportscaster director, and then Bruce Roberts would be on vacation. I'd sometimes fill in the winter on the weekends. But then what happened in September of 1981, on a weekend show, Roberts was in his, his office typing up the script. And uh, they had some guys from the Chicago Sting that just won their won a tournament or won in their division. And all of a sudden, Roberts is typing away in his typewriter. He slumps over the typewriter. Fatal heart attack. They didn't know right away that it was, but it was pretty obvious that he was dead. And so they had to get a soldier to work at the weekends, and I did that for until they hired somebody new in May, and then they hired that guy, and he got canned, and I did it again for a while. So I did quite a bit of the sports there at the time, but that was too much to do. I had a chance once to do this weekend sports on a permanent basis, I told by the news director, and I turned it down. I still wanted to work news in that sense. How did you prep for the sports cast? How did I prep? I made it bad because I had to write my own show at that time. They had this weekend. They had no union. They had a writer. No writer. They're in there. They did have young producers, young guys that call me in the office. We just pulled two minutes in the game between Minnesota and Ohio State. Here's what it shows. And I go into the room and look at it on the tape and our film, whatever it was at that time. And then I'd write a script to it. Jones is back. The Buckeyes moved quickly. Uh, Archie Griffin scored on a 75-yard gallop with three minutes and 12 seconds left in the first quarter as he scampers down the sideline, stuff like that. So it was a grind. Those weekends were a grind because all you did was do narration, stuff like that. wasn't any play-by-play or anything like that involved in it. Did you like but it? I, also did a lot of, I did a lot of sports in Rockford, Illinois. I'll tell you one story I got. If I may put myself on it, I remember more than anything else, Vince Lombardi whose name sure should ring a bell but doesn't to a lot of people anymore, who was the general manager and the coach of the Packers, most successful coach in America at that time, somebody said, but a very irritable guy, a very tough guy to do business with. He was speaking in a Madison thing called the Madison Pen and Pencil Club, and uh, Pen and Mike Club, I'm sorry, and we went up there, and uh, one of the th- understandings was that Vince did not want to do any interviews, so he's not going to do any interviews. But I was told when I got there, yeah, try to get an interview with Lombardi would be fantastic. And this was why it was newsworthy at that time. This was 1963. I'm going back many years. The Packers had just lost uh, Paul Harning, the golden boy from Notre Dame, because he was involved in a gambling scandal. And he was going to be not going to be able to play that fall, which is a body blow. And just before we went up to interview Lombardi, or uh, Mike Hill, he had made a trade because a guy named Bill Quinlan, who was a veteran defensive end and a very good one, was traded to, I forget, the Eagles or whatever, didn't make sense. Well, you give a guy who was all caliber for a, a journeyman player. And I was told later the reason why he did that, why would Quinlan be traded, he was the key to that defense on the ends, was the fact that this story, and I'll bring it up, he used a very unpolitical, he called, that is he, meaning Quinlan, called Lombardi the Jap. He thought that was, he did look like he was of Japanese descent or something like he was not. But, but Lombardi heard about it. And he's the type of guy, you make one mistake with him, and out the door you go. So he traded Quinlan. Didn't make sense. So I call. Oh, I got the interview. No interviews, but a guy named Ivy Williamson was the athletic director at the University of Wisconsin, of course, was there. And I'd known Ivy before and played golf with him. And he'd been drinking a lot. Ivy liked to have some belts. I said, Ivy, is there any way you think we could talk to Lombardi? Oh, no. Oh, wait a minute. He said, oh, what if I leave? Lombardi will have a hemorrhage. I'm going to ask him. And he went up and used his own clout to get me to do an interview with Lombardi. And Lombardi was very unhappy that he had to do that interview. And we started, he said, let's get going, get on the thing. And the first question I asked him right away was a lot of people are unhappy with the trade. It didn't make sense that you traded Bill Quinlan to the Eagles for a journeyman. Oh, we got, he said, that's, that's what you know. Almost ended the interview there and so on and so forth. But bringing back that Lombardi interview, you say, well, 
that was a big deal. It certainly was. We felt pretty good about that. It was a sports story, but it was still a coup. No question about it. Lombardi did not give out interviews easily, I'll tell you that much. It was quite an experience. I still got a picture with me and Vince together. Never forget that. And on television, the main thing you got to remember, you got pictures, pictures, pictures. You got video to cover it. That's the big question. You have video to cover those things you're talking about. I remember going to the federal building where we mentioned I'd be at the Dirksen building. I spent a lot of time over there on trials. And some of the guys in the print edition in those days, they had four newspapers. They say, here's a hell of a good story. Jeez, bomb, bomb. Joe Blow got arrested for this. He's going to be indicted. But there'd be no, I don't have no visuals at all on the guy. That's the story. Joe Blow was indicted today and that, but, and that goes as far as I tell on those guys. And you got to have pictures of Joe Blow, to have pictures of the scam, anything like that. As you know, you watch television, you need those, what they call the perp walk, the guy coming in the building and going upstairs with his lawyers or whatever the case. And by the way, that we did, I can go off the track for a minute here. We did a story on the, on the number of, of, <laughs> of mob guys that tried to avoid the cameras. It was funnier than hell. We gave me two and a half minutes to do a story. And we followed, we'd shoot these guys. Some of them would try to get out of the building without being photographed. Some would assault you and things of that nature. It was great television. Great television. That's another reason doing the mob stories were fun stories because people like to watch it, particularly in the mob. Joey Lombardo, we were the first one to get pictures of him over at, a, at the courthouse in Clark Street. Joe Lombardo, by for those, he was known as the clown, rarely, very rarely photographed. He's the guy that came out the first time with a newspaper over his face and walked to, the, to his car. So that, that was great. That's great theater stuff like that was. <laughs> And also the guys who attacked you guys. Well, sometime we had one. We had one judge that came up. Uh, it was Judge Maloney's, who it was, who was actually convicted, charged of bribery. The federal building. He was a criminal court judge. And apparently that they, meaning the authorities, they gave him a break. Then most of those guys would have to come down in the elevator and be waiting for them. But we had a, a very sharp cameraman by the name of Bill Burke. He said that guy's going to get out. I bet he comes to let him go down to the, to take him down to the basement and he'll walk up the ramp and we'll miss him because we'll be in the building. So Burke posted himself right up when the ramp and they came up the ramp. Maloney came up the ramp and when he was discovered, he was so enraged he took a swing at Burke, but missed and hit the deck himself. <laughs> that was great television. <laughs> That's the one we did the story on the mobsters on that we I remember the name of we called it Bashful Bad Guys. It ran about almost three minutes, two and a half to three minutes long, which is a lot, showing these uh, interaction between the media. And these guys coming out of buildings or funerals or whatever it was, or it'd be sometime near fisticuffs, things of that nature. Was that unique to Chicago? Yeah, well, I remember I went out to L.A. We were doing a story called Syndicate in the Sun, showing how the Chicago mob had moved their tentacles to all over the West, including Los Angeles and uh, Phoenix, San Diego, and, of course, Vegas. And it so happened when we were out there, the top leaders of the Los Angeles mob were on trial. And uh, it gave us a bonus shot to get these guys coming out at lunchtime or leaving whenever it was. The four leaders, Dominic Brooklier, Jack Dragna, whoever they were, I remember they were coming out. And they all came out like sheep. They put things over their face like a paper or, or hid their faces or, uh, over their arms or something like that. And I remember saying, they, those guys are mob leaders. If I was a soldier in that mob, I'd say, these guys look like, like candy. I'd pass these for God's sakes. And I remember making, supposedly, this is not because of our film, but Ricardo was very contemptuous of the Los Angeles mob brass. He called them the Mickey Mouse Mafia. And he was sure right about that. They looked like Mickey Mouse people coming out terrified. They were the leaders of the L.A. mob. <laughs> I remember that. We showed that. And I remember when I saw the movie The Fugitive, and you were in oh, it. How did movie. you get in that? I, I knew Andy Davis was the director of that picture. And I'd done another movie. I did one called Above the Law and act of some other things. Andy used me as a consultant on some things to come over and talk about what police would do on these conditions or what the organized crime or politics do. And so he called me to do a role for the in The Fugitive. 
I had the only trouble about it. By the way, the station had blocked me on a couple other film act, but this one they let me do it. But I had to work there. I just said, understand, if you do the work of the show, you don't get the next day off. That day off, you work a night, you're going to be down here at nine or eight o'clock in the morning, as regular at seven or whatever it is. We want you. Unfortunately, they shot so much at night, it was pretty bad. I'll give you an example. The first night it was a Sunday night. The first scene, by the way, and by the way, if the first voice you hear in that movie is not Harrison Ford or anybody else, it's me. Next time you go, they say that voice familiar. Yeah, it is. It's not those guys. It's me. But anyway, this is worth meeting the story. So I, they said to report the station okayed it because we were going to shoot during that Sunday night. I had to report at three o'clock. I thought I'd be on there by ten o'clock or so. Ha ha. But anyway, you got to be back at work the next day. No problem on that. So to make a long story short again, I go there at three o'clock. The young guy who's a producer type gives me the script. He said, "Here's the script. Learn your lines. Know your lines." I said, "Yes, sir. I will." And I sat there in that in the trailer for so long. The guy said, how long is it going to be? Oh, it'll be a while yet. And the next thing I know, at 9 o'clock, the guy knocks on the trailer. He said, time to eat. We came out. I remember I had a nice swordfish steak dinner at that time. And I'd sit in that long. Came back into the van again and uh, waited. And this guy came. But he said, let's go. We're going on now. Do you know your lines? I said, I know them very well. I go out to the scene. And uh, Andy Davis is the director. He comes to me. He says, Brum, do you know your lines? Mr. Davis, I know. I know. Yes, sir, I do. I've been working. I know the lines very well. He said, shit, Cannon, forget it. Forget those lines. We're gonna, this is all you know that Dr. So-and-so had been at, um, had been at a bit American Medical Association fair at the Four Seasons Hotel. He had to leave, came back, comes to his apartment here on Wisconsin Street, and lo and behold, he finds a man grappling with his wife and killed her. Grappled with the guy, the guy got away, and so on. That's all you know. Bang, let's go. And we did it in one take, so I had no information, but he was right in this sense. When reporters are sent to the scene in cases like that, you rarely don't, really don't have much to talk about. You don't know what's going on. People are not telling you they're at the scene until it develops later on. So that was accurate. So I had, I, he did it, we did it in one take. He said, that's it. I went home. That was it that night. <laughs> Neil, now that you've done so many things, what would you say is the high point? I mean, it's if, if you're able to think in those terms. Well, in dreams, I'd like to be a Hollywood star. They could be a fugitive would have called me back and uh, said, you can now be the new uh, new Sean Connery or somebody like that. Yeah, I'd take that up. But I don't think that was going to happen. When I look back, the television was good. It was also financially was, of course, a good thing. But going on certain stories, TV can either be some days long and the hours are long. And a lot of you had to put up with a lot of stuff. But some days when you got a good story you're interested in or breaking something, you thought you really felt good about that. You'd go home and really feel good about that. You felt like I did something and I really enjoyed it. Do you ever just want to be an anchor? Oh, yeah. That's to be in the chair. As a matter of fact, okay, you asked, I'm telling you. There was a period there that when either Jacobson or Curtis, when their so-called golden age at the station, I'm referring to Bill Curtis and Walter Jacobson, when they were off for one reason or another, I was a pinch hitter on that news at 6 and 10. So we did that for quite a while. But when you were a well-known reporter, did people offer you drinks and so forth? Yes, that would happen. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, they would. I said one time, though, I bought a drink. I went, we covered a cardo down in Miami. This is a story I bought down there, and I got tipped off that the mob guys that were on trial would be hanging out at this one restaurant in Hollandale, I think, just north of Miami, near Hollywood. It was a Chicago outfit. A Chicago guy ran it. But lo and behold, my two crew guys went out there. And there they were, most of the guys on the trial. So I sent a drink over to their table. Only one guy would not take the drink. So I sent it back. It was Vince Solano, I remember, who was a boss of the Labor's Union and a mob guy. But I figured I had to do that. They toasted me and so on and so forth, so I got a kick out of that. 
there's things about the business that I was in, of course, with long hours, and I, everybody beefs about that. But no, I work in general, my hours are long. I started always working six-day weeks. Think of that now, six days a week always. That's a grind. That was not good. That was one thing coming to Chicago. There's a five-day work week as a rule. If you did work a six-day, you got paid for it. But it was very disruptive. I can't. I remember particularly New Kid on the Block. How many Christmases did I have here when my children were growing up? Things of that nature you can never bring back. I got roasted twice on Christmas Eve, believe it or not. One time uh, when I was hijacking out at O'Hare Field, and I forget the other was a uh, incident that uh, with an armored car holdup. That was a pretty big story. But um, there's drawbacks in that. I mean, the hours are long. They're irregular hours too. And you have to remember that. I remember my friends when I was grew up in Eau Claire, they say, aren't you coming up to Eau Claire to visit, won't you? I said, no, I, what do you mean you got to work? I said, well, that's just another day. It doesn't make any difference. If you're scheduled to work that day, you work. They don't shut down. And uh, so things like that you got to consider, too. And it's also a stressful business. You can be canned very easily. And I'll tell you what they used to have. It was a real racket for management there. They, you sign a contract. You know how long it was? A 13-month contract. Oh, they say it was three years. But every 13 months, they, many management, would determine whether they wanted to keep the contract or not. As soon as some sharp lawyers got a hold of that and said, hey, we can bust that one, that's not the case anymore. So once you sign a contract, at least you got some protection, as you do now. But it seems like there was more money in the media before. Oh, yeah. listen, I'm telling you that. I think when Curtis Jacobson and, and Johnny Morse had a heyday, this is the BBM was a baby of the network. BBM proud and joy. Our numbers were very good, and they always that was, that was a flagship station in a way, even though New York, of course, was a bigger market. The anchormen made big dough in those days. Oh, my gosh, they could buy and sell you. Oh, you're kidding. You're darn right they made big money. They're not making that money now because of the simple reason that they're never going to get the market share that they did. Mm-hmm. First of all, cable came in. That hurt them. So people had another option to watch it. And then the Internet, it was a body blow. So there's not as many people. At one time, the 10 o'clock news at night here in this market was religiously watched by most everybody. You get the weather in those days. They didn't have a weather channel, things of that nature, in the news. People watched the 10 o'clock news. It was a habit. Today, that numbers are way, way, way down because there's other ways to get uh, news other than the 10 o'clock news at night. But that was a heyday of television. So I worked. That's another thing. Working today, the people that are working today, they didn't get the share. I think, frankly, you asked about where you get free drinks and that. You had more recognition in those days. Whether you worked at 2, 5, or 7, or 9, or seen a lot on the air compared to what they are today because the audience is nowhere near in watching television. Young people today don't sit around watching the 10 o'clock news like they did before. I don't think so at any rate and see the market. When I understand researchers tell me that's absolutely true. No, they're not paying as much as they are. So if you want to get your feet wet to start in the business, you're not going to make the dough you did years ago, but you're still in the anchor chair. You're still not going to be starving to death. You do pretty well. You do pretty well. So when was the heyday? I think, well, it was a period as far as television is concerned, television news I'm talking about in this market and any other market prior to the newspapers were folding up. Remember that as a source of news. We had four papers when I started working here. The Daily News went under in 78, and the uh, Journal American later became the Chicago Today. That went under in 74. So they were feeling the brunch of it, and people were watching the news rather than reading in the newspapers. I'd say the high day probably in television news in this market was probably in the late 70s and through the 80s, until mid-80s. That was the heyday, I think. Low 70s till the mid-80s, I think that's the heyday of television watching for news in this market. Yeah, absolutely, in any market. By the way, the newscast in the 50s, you know how long the 10 o'clock news was? 15 minutes long. That's all. They had Fahey Flynn as the anchor guy, and people watched this. I think Standard Oil, later Amico, that was the sponsor. 
and later it became a half hour, and then, as you know now, a newscast started at 4 o'clock there, going, and then long morning casts, which they didn't have in those days either. And so there's more news on the air than there was then, but the audience is very divided and much minimized compared to what it was. It doesn't, I don't think TV has quite the impact today that it had at one time. It still has an impact. I'm not trying to minimize it completely, but it doesn't have the sock that it had before. When the minicam came out in 74, whenever it was it came out, we had it first. I mean, we, meaning the station. That really revolutionized. You go live at night all the time, and uh, and people were fascinated by that. They were fascinated by that. God knows why. It was usually boring shots. Those first live shots were just because they wanted to get out to show that we could be live and in color somewhere. That was what it was. But that was a heyday of television. They'd probably never come back because of the fact that the Internet, cable, the cable shows, and all that stuff that they didn't have then. But what do you think about seeing it from when you were a kid? to TV, to the internet. What's it like to see all that? It's amazing. I mean, how things, that's what I mean, the way technological things have changed so much. I remember, this has nothing to do with the internet, when I started out with a radio, we had these huge tape recorders, like the Euro German tape recorder lugged very heavy. Now you have these miniature things to record. That's a good example how things have changed in that sense right there from the bigger things to the smaller things. I mean, you can carry them almost in your hand. That's how things have changed in that area so many technological things. We had film in our days. There was no videotape. That changed about 74. Everything was shot on film for a long time. It took time to process it and things of that nature. It never could go live. Very hard to. So the business has changed entirely. There's no question about it. And what I remember is um, on TV news showing the body bags of the people who were killed. Yeah. I'm one of those, a lot of people say don't show that. I think that shows the magnitude. I think when you're doing a murder, you've got to show how serious it is. We had one news a general manager would not allow us, supposedly went to a, a shooting, to allow us to show the deceased being carried out either in a body bag or on a gurney with his head covered. By not doing showing that, I think it gave the impression that, well, it's very clean, clinical, nothing bad. Showing us, when you see that, it really affects what's happened. This man has been killed, or this individual's been killed, this woman's been killed. And uh, I think that was wrong. I know the body bags, as long as it's not gross pictures on that, but it, it really hits home when you see something like that. Good Lord. <laughs> Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.